This is Year Zero. Good morning. It is early Monday morning. Not too early, but early enough. I'm still drinking my coffee. I uh, have been so busy at home on the weekends, it's hard for me to get to the intros for podcasts. So I uh, put this one off until this morning, and I'm releasing this episode a little bit late. But... What you are about to hear is an interview or a conversation I had with Mike Meharry about the Federal Reserve. And I found it to be important to talk about this um, because of all the new libertarians that we're seeing. The, The young new listeners I'm getting to my podcast. I'm sure there are a lot of young new listeners to other podcasts as well. So I found it to be uh, an important topic to talk about. So we uh, had Mike on and we, we, me and the mouse in my pocket, had Mike on and uh, decided to have a conversation about the Federal Reserve to give these people a launching off point in their knowledge on the Fed. But before we get into that, as always... Go to ryanbunting.com for all of your graphic design needs. Ryan Bunting is a great anarcho-capitalist, and he has designed the podcast logo for Free Man Beyond the Wall and for Year Zero, as well as book my book cover and the cover for his own book, Project Manicore, which was very well written. So ryanbunting.com for all of your graphic design needs. And as always, thank you, Tom Burton, for the music. All right. I am here with Mr. Mike Meharry. What's going on, Bubba? Man, it's good to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Make this a yearly thing. (laughs) There we go. Daniel Daniel Mike Meharry treat. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I've noticed um, a lot of... A lot new, a lot of young new libertarians here recently, and um, talking to my kids, and you know they're in their late teens, early twenties, and they're telling me that all their friends are libertarians, and you know, uh, then I, I've seen the numbers of uh, listenership of the show go up, and uh, I'm I'm just thinking, I was thinking that, well, you know, these guys they they weren't exposed to the Ron Paul treatment on the Federal Reserve. So we need to do right. um, Federal Reserve 101 so these people know what the Federal Reserve is. Yeah, you're right about that. And it's, you know, I've been asked before if I could eliminate one institution from the government and you know, just pick one, what would it be? And, uh, I think the first would be get the the government out of education because that's the the root of all of the brainwashing and indoctrination. But after that, it would definitely be the Federal Reserve because that central bank really makes possible everything else that the government does. We would not have a welfare and a warfare state if it wasn't for the fact the Fed is basically backstopping the uh, borrowing and spending that the government does. If they actually had to tax us, 
uh, you know, in a, in a direct real way for all of the things that the government does, I think people would be more apt to re recognize that, hey, this government that we have isn't free, which I think is the, uh, the misguided notion that a lot of people have. Right. Well, let, let's, uh, let's start off with, with getting into what is the Federal Reserve. And I've had this conversation with, with progressives and conservatives alike. And they always come back to me, well, the Constitution gives the government the power to mint coin and to make money. So we need the Federal Reserve so the government has that power. So the, the, a lot of people believe that the Federal Reserve is a government entry, entity. Right. And I guess because of the word federal in, in its title. So give the listenership a, a, a background and a breakdown of what is the Federal Reserve and where it came from. Yeah, it's this weird thing, actually. It's it's not government, but it's not really private either. It's almost this quasi-private government institution. I mean, and it's, it's basic. You boil it all down. It's a central bank. Uh, it is ultimately a private organization. It has its own board of directors. It is not part of the U.S. government. Uh, it is a, uh, an independent uh, business. But it is so intertwined with the federal government. I mean, the president, you know, uh, appoints the members of the board of governors and the the federal reserve chair, and and so the the government's involved in it. But there's supposed to be this uh, this separation between central bank and state that uh, only exists on paper. And it's funny because every once in a while, you know, they'll get all sanctimonious and talk about the independence of the Fed. We are independent. Bullshit. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> Bull crap. Uh, it's not independent in any way, not, shape, or form. If you do not cuss at least once talking about this subject, I will be greatly offended. <laughs> well, there we've, we've already got it in there and there could be more. Uh, but, huh. but yeah, so so it isn't private. It isn't government. It's it's a private entity that's kind of run by the government. Uh, but in, in essence, it is a central bank. It is the lender to the lenders. And it basically makes the whole uh, U.S. economy in terms of its finances, the banking system, it basically makes it function. So all of the, the commercial banks that exist in the United States have their reserves on deposit at the Federal uh, Reserve Bank. Uh, the Fed can loan banks money. It basically greases the uh, the banking system. And you know, I don't want to get real deep into the intricacies of banking because it's not really important to the conversation, and it, it'll get way out of my depth pretty quick. Uh, but the important thing to understand is uh, that the the thing that the Fed can do that makes everything go the way it does is in, in effect can create money out of thin air. You know, we talk about the Fed printing money. That's really a misnomer. It's not, you know, it doesn't have a printing press in the basement of the Eccles building. You know, they're not running off dollar bills. When we talk about printing money, what we really mean is they are uh, essentially writing a check for money that doesn't actually exist. So when they write the check, the money uh, suddenly appears out of thin air. I mean, I wish I could do that, you know, but that's exactly what happens. You imagine if you could go and just, you know, you could write Mike Meharry a check. And even if you didn't have any dollars in your account, the check would be good. And I would have that money. That's, that's what the fed does. It writes checks 
uh, on balances that don't exist and injects money into thin air. So that has all kinds of ramifications uh, within the economy that we can get into a little bit more. But that really is the power of the Federal Reserve. So, you know, it's technically not minting coin. Uh, the government still does that. You know, they've got the U.S. Mint where they where they do that, and they print off dollar bills. But in effect, it's the Federal Reserve that's really um, manipulating and, and growing the money supply. Yeah, you know, one of the one of the things that I remember uh, reading, I think it was in Creature from Jekyll Island, where I read this, mm-hmm. when and he was talking about the the purpose of the Federal Reserve was the bailout system. And it was to keep its banker buddies afloat. And with with the Federal Reserve, its board is, we don't know exactly. You can't really get, you know, an exact, you know, member structure of the board of the Federal Reserve. But we have an idea of who is on the Federal Reserve board and who's actually running the, 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 the policy of the federal reserve and it's it appears to be the top five banks in the world so what they're essentially doing is the banks are printing them are creating money to loan to the government in the interest and the and the principals paid back with tax dollars and then that the government is then gifting that money to the banks Basically, that that basically sums it up. And, you know, I think for me, the the really important aspect of it. And again, you know, I'm, I'm not really an expert on the banking system. So I will, I will you know, make that uh, uh, caveat where, where I'm really interested in the Fed is the way that it impacts the broader U.S. economy and the way it enables the U.S. government to do all of the things that it does. Like I mentioned a minute ago, if it weren't for the Fed, there is no way that we would have this massive uh, government spending program, plural, uh, that we have today because the Federal Reserve makes that possible through their manipulation of, uh, of the financial system. And let me, let me just explain really quick how it works. Uh, I'll, give the, uh, I'll try to give the thumbnail sketch uh, kind of in the layman's terms. So we know that the uh, the federal government has all kinds of things that it wants to do. It wants to hand out money. You know, we've got unemployment. Uh, it wants to have the biggest military in the world. It wants to uh, build infrastructure. You know, all this all this stuff that the government's doing. So all that costs money. So in an honest world, the government would have to tax that money from the citizenry. And, uh, and then pay for all of the government programs. But that would fall apart really quickly because of the amount of money that the government is actually spending. If you actually were taxed for, you know, the, the what was it, the $1.9 trillion coronavirus stimulus bailout, you know, imagine if we were actually taxed for that. People would realize that, whoa, wait a minute, you know, this, is, this isn't free. You know, this is costing me a heck of a lot of money. And the fact of the matter is the the economy couldn't bear the level of taxation that would be necessary to run the biggest government in the history of the world. So what happens is the, the government borrows money. Instead of taxing it, we, we borrow, which, you know, that's cute. Uh, basically, you're pushing that tax burden onto your kids and grandkids, in effect. The way that the government borrows is it sells 
uh, U.S. Treasury bonds. Uh, so a bond is basically just a debt instrument. So the uh, the government sells the bond to the investor. So you know, say me, I buy a bond. Um, I'm basically loaning the government X amount of money. It pays interest back to me for, uh, you know, giving them the loan. So I make a little money. Bonds are considered, you know, safe investments. And, uh, and then ultimately, uh, the government has to pay me back when the bond matures. So, you know, we, they run anywhere from six months all the way up to 30 years. And so, Okay, so that, you know, that kind of makes sense. That's basically the it's like a credit card. You know, the government has a credit card and and uh, the world is the uh, the one that's backing the debt. The problem with that is the US government sells so many bonds. There is so much debt. Over 28 trillion dollars in debt, which is really an unfathomable number at this point. But that's that's the reality of of the debt held by the public. There is no way that the government could sell the number of bonds necessary to finance all of this spending if there wasn't something that was manipulating the market. And that something is the Federal Reserve. And so this is why I say that the Fed makes all of this possible. Uh, the way bonds work, the, the way the bond market, it's supply and demand just like anything else, right? Uh, the more people want the bonds, the higher the price of the bond will be. Uh, as the supply of bonds increases, demand decreases, the price of the bond drops. Interest rates or bond yields are the inverse of that. So whenever a bond gets more expensive, uh, the interest rate, the, the yield on that falls. So in a normal market, if the federal government suddenly had to borrow $1.9 trillion to fund a stimulus plan, uh, it would have to sell $1.9 trillion worth of bonds. It would flood the market with bonds. There's not enough buyers for those, those bonds. So the price of the bonds drop and the interest rate that has to be paid by the government goes up. Uh, which means it's it's increasing the cost of government borrowing. We can't have that. So the Fed steps in and it buys the bonds off the open market and basically creates artificial demand uh, and boosts the price of bonds and keeps the interest rates low. That keeps the government's borrowing price low and it allows uh, the, the supply and demand dynamic to basically be, be thwarted. Right now, Every single month, the Federal Reserve is buying $120 billion in, uh, in bonds. Not all of those are treasury. Some of them are, are mortgage. So they're also got their big fat fingers in the mortgage market as well. Uh, but this is really what backstops it. So, so what happens is the Federal Reserve writes a check to ABC Bank. ABC Bank gives them a bunch of U.S. Treasury bonds that go on the Fed's balance sheet. And then ABC Bank gets however much money that all of those bonds cost. And the trick in this is all of that money was created out of thin air. It's the Fed writing that check where there was no money before. So all of a sudden, the bank has all of this extra cash that gets lent out and, and, and brought into the financial system. So this is what is known as monetizing the debt. That's what the Fed is doing every single day. It is monetizing the US debt. It is buying the treasury bonds 
It is buying with money that's created out of thin air. It's increasing the money supply. It's creating inflation. It's driving prices up. And it allows the federal government to continue borrowing money without crashing the bond market. So, you know, I hope that wasn't too complex because it's kind of a weird finance thing. But I mean, I think it's pretty clear. I mean, really, all you need to know is the Fed's got its big fat thumb on the bond market. It's manipulating the bond market and it's allowing the federal government to borrow far more money at a far lower interest rate than it otherwise would. And uh, and so it's manipulating the system. And when any, anybody starts talking about, oh, capitalism, we got evil capitalism in America, I'm like, no, that's a bunch of bullhooey. There is no capitalism when the government literally controls the money. It controls the most fundamental thing in the financial system through the central bank and through all of this mechanization. And there's all kinds of, uh, of bad economic uh outcomes that result from manipulating the uh, the bond market it's it's messing with prices it's messing with supply and demand and uh, you know the analogy is kind of like if, if you imagine living in a world where there were no road signs like how the hell would you know where you were in fact back during uh, the early years of World War II the British actually went through like London and through the countryside and they took down all the road signs fearing that the Nazis were going to invade and uh, knowing that if they took down all the road signs, it would make it more difficult for invading troops to orient themselves and know where they are. This is exactly what the Fed does when it's manipulating interest rates, manipulating uh, the bond market and all of these other aspects of the economy. It's taking down the signs that would make a true free market economy function properly. So we have this, this awful system that is kind of quasi uh, and I like to call it crony capitalist because it's run by the, the bankers and, and the big corporations. Uh, and, and you end up with uh, this mess that we have today for an economy. And anytime a progressive wants to start fussing at me about, um, about you know, the, the evils of capitalism, I say, well, why aren't you concerned about the Federal Reserve? Because they all love the Fed, too, you know, because they depend on it for all of the uh, government spending that they want to happen. Because, again, without that central bank, none of this would be possible. Yeah. So long, long story long right there. <laughs> That's all right. That's a lot of good information for people to, to absorb and, and to look further into. Um, when, when you're talking about the, the Federal Reserve making it possible for the federal government to pay for all these programs, I think Ron Paul was the first one I ever heard talk about this. And he, he was talking about without yeah. the Federal Reserve, perpetual war would not be not be possible imagine having to pay for for the amount of destruction the amount of time that that the united states has been invading other nations imagine having to pay for the amount of money that the united states sends to other nations you know and and when you start thinking about your when you start thinking about your least favorite um policy that the federal government is involved in, no matter where you stand on the political aisle, it's the federal reserve that makes that possible. Right. Yes. And in, in understanding economics and, and the idea of trade-offs is extremely important in understanding what you're getting involved in. You are giving private banks, the, the power to, Mint, not mint, but to create money out of thin air to loan to the federal government 
And then you, your children, your children's children, and every generation from here on out are expected to pay that loan back. Right. All right. So is, is your favorite policy worth that expense? Yeah. And that's the beauty of the system. I say beauty. That's from the perspective of the government people it's beautiful for them because by doing this they actually hide the tax you know government is never free and i think we have a whole generation of people today that really believe that this is all just you know oh the government's got all kinds of money or they think oh we could tax the rich i did the math one time if you took all of the wealth of all of the billionaires in the uh, in the united states it would run the federal government for like six months. There's not enough rich people to tax to pay for all of this stuff. So it has to be paid. It has to be paid for somewhere. You know, nothing is free. There's no such thing as a free lunch. So instead of directly taxing it, which again would create a revolt, they use uh, this basically it's an inflation tax. And I guess that's another important concept that people need to wrap their head around is the insidiousness of inflation. And it's simply, when I say inflation, it's simply the increase in the supply of money. Uh, and there are a lot of symptoms that we see. We call inflation today rising prices, but uh, rising prices are really just an, a symptom of true inflation, which is an increase in the money supply. Whenever you increase the money supply, you are devaluing the dollar. Uh, think of it this way. If I, have a, if I have a donut and I have a dollar, and then suddenly I create another dollar out of thin air, but I only have one donut still, basically I've halved the, the value of that dollar. Uh, more dollars chasing the same amount of stuff. That's what inflation does. It is literally a tax. It taxes you by taking away the value of your dollar. It is particularly insidious for people who are on fixed incomes and people who are trying to save. If I save a dollar today, it's not going to be worth a dollar in, in two years or five years. This is a policy on purpose because what happens is when you borrow a dollar today and then you devalue the currency, it doesn't take uh, the, the dollar that you're paying back is not worth the same as the dollar that you originally borrowed. It's worth less. So in, in essence, you're inflating away the debt. It's beautiful for the government. It's a way of paying off the debt, but you're paying for it with a decrease in your ability to purchase and spend. And, and economists will, out there will tell you, and mainstream economists will say, oh, this is good. Inflation is good uh, because of, of reasons. Think about what they're saying. They're telling you that Prices going up is good for you economically. Now, I'm not brilliant, you know. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not a Harvard-educated economist or anything, but I know that when prices go up, that's not good for me, you know. I'm sure you know that. You're in the trucking business. You know, when the cost of diesel fuel goes up, that's not good for you. That's not good for your business. Uh, when it costs me more to buy the same basket of groceries than it did yesterday, that's not good. That is the tax that you're paying thanks to the Federal Reserve and this goofy system that they've created. So, you know, when you're thinking, oh, I got my $1,400 stimulus check. This is great. Well, you're paying for that down the road. And that $1,400 in about 10 years is going to be worth $700. So you're not really gaining anything when it's all said and done, but it's all hidden. And that's the beauty of it from the government perspective. And that's why it's important for us to talk about this 
it's boring. Nobody wants to talk about central banks or economics, but it is absolutely imperative for people to understand it. If they're if they're going to have an opinion on the political system, they've got to understand what's going on uh, in terms of the economics of it, because they are literally stealing us blind and we don't even realize it. Yeah. And the way I try to explain it to people, and it's not the best way I've ever heard it explained, but it's a real world example. If, and I always tell them, if you, if you went to go buy a Coca-Cola in, in the eighties, let's say it was 35, 40 cents a can today, you go buy a can of Coca-Cola yeah. it's 85, 90 cents a can. So is that Coca-Cola worth more right. or is the dollar worth less? You know, right. exactly. and that's the that's way perfect. I look at it. That's a perfect example. The, the yeah. way, the but, best way I've ever heard it described was if you had um, an ounce of gold in 1920, you could have bought a custom suit and a nice pair of dress shoes. Yep. If you had an ounce of gold today, you could buy a custom suit and a nice pair of dress shoes. But yep. that ounce of gold in 1920 was $20 and it's, over $1,700 today for that ounce of gold. Yeah, so, exactly. you know, the gold has not lost its value. The dollar has lost its value. Right. That that's, that's perfect. It's that's, and that helps you people to helps people to visualize what's actually going on. Now, the counter argument to that people will say, well, you know, Mike, you know, wages go up too. So it's really not hurting you, you know, because obviously we're, we're, you know, when a suit was $20 an hour or $20 for a suit, people weren't making, you know, 10 or 15, $20 an hour. Uh, so yeah, it's true that wages also increase, but wages increase more slowly than prices. So, you know, it's chipping away at your buying power. And the other part of this is that it's pretty insidious when you really get down to it. And if you really want to get into, you know, the progressives like to talk about the 1% and, and wealth disparity and, and whatnot. And we can debate whether or not wealth disparity is or isn't, isn't, a horrible thing or not. But the fact of the matter is a lot of the wealth disparity is created by this very system because the people who benefit the most are the first people to get the new dollar. When that new dollar goes into circulations, prices haven't risen yet. Inflation hasn't taken its bite. So those first receivers of the money, they benefit from all of this. That's why you Get these bankers and these politicians and these politically co uh, connected corporatists get richer and richer and richer. They are the beneficiaries of these dollars as they're entering into the system. By the time it trickles down to you and me, we're basically getting hosed uh, and our wages aren't rising nearly as fast as the prices are rising. So it's gradually and slowly tearing down our standard of living. And you can just look back, you know, go back to the 1950s when it was very common for. Uh, one person in the household to work. Uh, how many households really today, unless they're they're in extremely high earning positions, can survive on one income? You can't mm -hmm. do it. Uh, and that's just another example of the way that our standard of living, especially those of us in the middle and, and lower middle classes, uh, we're being destroyed by these policies. And quite frankly, I think it's on purpose because, you know, it's much easier to keep us under control if we're dependent on the government handing us stuff and we can't work our, on our own to provide for our own needs and for the needs of our family. So it creates dependency, uh, which is paid for again by all of this government spending, which just perpetuates the cycle. And meanwhile, you've got these, these rich bankers, the 1% that uh, are literally going to the bank 
uh, on our backs and nobody seems to realize it. They want to blame Donald Trump. Well, you know, I'm sure Donald Trump, he didn't really help the situation any, but this is not the problem. It's not the policies of Washington, D.C. It's the very system, the economic system that's been constructed. Uh, and, and again, I can't emphasize this enough. This is not a free market. America is not a free market economy. It's more free market than some places, I'll grant you, but it's not in any way, shape or form what uh, the true meaning of a free market is. Yes. And, and if you look back to like um, the beginning of uh, when, when Henry Ford was around, he used to pay his, his employees that were working on the um, assembly line. He paid them $5 a day. Mm -hmm. Right. So if, and if you, and if you take that and you convert it to today's money, that, I mean, that's like $2,000 a week. You know, how many people out there are making that kind of money today? You know, working out in the field that I work in, you almost have to own your own truck to make that kind of money. If you're working for a company, you're a company driver, you're gone, you know, sometimes 14, 28 days at a time, not ever going home. And you are, you're making less than they were making, you know, in, in 19, what, 30 or whatever, whenever that was, that he was paying his workers $5 a day. And and progressives want to point to that and say, well, look at this greedy capitalist only paying employees $5 a day. That's slave labor. Well, in today's wages, yes. But in in the wages of of yesteryear, no. Before Before they inflated the dollar and devalued it to the point of where we're sitting today, it, the, that was that was a great wage. You had yeah. one one person in the family working in you know a family of five, you know, or a family of six mm-hmm. sometimes, and they were living a pretty decent life. Yeah. So so the Federal Reserve is the reason that not only have you seen a stagnation in in your in in your rise of living, it's also the reason why you need two people in a household working. Mm-hmm. I'll give you another example that kind of brings this home as well. Uh, the minimum wage in 1963 was, I believe, a buck 25. So it's basically five quarters, right? Now, at that time, all money was made out of not not dollar bills, but all of the coin money was made out of actual silver. Uh, 1964 was the year they switched over and took silver out of the coins. So in 1963, you basically got five silver quarters for your minimum wage. Now, I'm not a proponent of minimum wages in any way, shape, or form, but this gives you an example of how much uh, the dollar has devalued, or in this case, the quarter. So you've got these five quarters. If you take five of those quarters today, if you can find five quarters that were minted before 1963 or before 64, so 63 and earlier, uh, the melt value of that silver today is worth over $15 an hour. I haven't looked at it recently. It's between, between $15 and $20 an hour. So those five quarters today, the value of that silver would buy you Fifteen to twenty dollars of of goods or services. So it's not that the minimum wage 
is messed up. It's the fact that our money is messed up. That, I mean, that really drives that point home. You know, uh, it's it's a it's a money problem. They they have devalued things so much that if we had five silver quarters, if you if somebody said to me, Mike, I'll give you five silver quarters for an hour's of work, I'd be like, heck yeah, <laughs> sign me up. Uh, so the other small lesson in that is, you know, when you get change, keep your eyes open for dimes and quarters that were minted before 1964 because they're worth significantly more than a quarter or a dime. Um, but it just goes to show again how the the money has been messed up over the years, and uh, you know it's not that we need to raise the minimum wage; it's that we need to fix the money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, but there is there is kind of the argument that you know that the progressives, and I've heard some more intelligent progressives that kind of understand the devaluation of the money, say, well, if you were to if you were to have adjusted for inflation and and the de devaluing of money the minimum wage would be you know near twenty dollars an hour right now if it would have been adjusted for over time so that's 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 you know quantifiable and you can see that right but the fact of the matter is that you know who who was it i was listening to and I'm trying to, I, I just had it on the tip of my tongue and now it went away. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. It happens all the time. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, man, I can't remember the point I was going to make. It was, it was, it was actually pretty brilliant too. And I can say that because it's not coming back to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so nobody knows the difference. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I'll say this, um, you know, it's important to remember that this policy of inflation is intentional. Um, this is by design, which is kind of crazy. Now, if you, if you think about how an, an actual economy works, typically prices drop as productivity increases. Uh, as, you, as you get better at making something, uh, the price of that drops. And we see this all the time. Look at a cell phone. You know, I remember back... Uh, when cell phones first came out, it was like in the in the eighties, and one of the guys I worked for actually had one of the early cell phones, and it was like this big suitcase thing. That, you know, it had the had a cord attached to a box. It was yeah, pretty, Miami pretty crazy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and today we get these phones that we hold in our hands that are way less expensive than that giant box that. Uh, my former boss used to carry around, and it does far more. I mean, we have the computing power in our hands that is greater than the computing power that they used to go to the freaking moon. So we've seen the technology advance and the price come down. And when you keep the government out of things, prices drop. TVs, computers, uh, shoes, all of these things, as we get better at producing, prices drop. So that's the natural flow of an economy. And again, for us as a consumer, that's good. We want prices to drop. And we've got people like Paul Krugman running around saying, oh, no, dropping prices is bad. We must keep prices up. Why? Because it benefits them. That's exactly why. So, you know, it, it really frustrates me because it is this total manipulation of the system to the benefit of a few. And, and I guess what really frustrates me is that, that my friends on the left they should be equally upset about this, but they're not. They like the system. They just want to create all kinds of other crap on top of it that ultimately are going to make it worse. They don't see the root problem. And, and that was the beauty of what Ron Paul did, you know, back when he started talking about the Federal Reserve. He 
exposed that problem for what it really is. And, you know, imagine this for a minute. You've got this, this old guy that got a bunch of young people excited about the central bank because they got it. He explained it in a way that they got. And somehow we've, we've lost that. And, and now it seems like everybody just wants to support and prop up the system. You know, we've got all these people that, that say they're woke and, uh, and they're resisting the system. And yet they embrace everything that the system actually is, which is kind of sad and pathetic. Yes. And, and, you know, the people, the, the progressives, those on the left, um, claim to be more humanitarian and, and care more about the poor and yada, yada, right. yada. But this disproportionately affects the poor more than Absolutely. it affects anybody else. This props up the rich and creates the poor. This is the, the, the result of the Federal Reserve system and the inflating of the money supply is what you see as the wage gap that they're right. always complaining about. That's exactly right. And, here's, and, here's, oh, I remembered what I was going to ask you a while ago. I, was I, it, it wasn't, wasn't it as brilliant as you thought it was? No, it wasn't. It was more of a question than it was. Uh, <laughs> than, it, than it was. Oh, so point. I have to be brilliant. You do have to be brilliant. Actually, no, no I'm just curious if you um, have run into this uh, study because I was looking for a study that I was that I heard someone talking about. And uh, he, the the president of the Texas Nationalist Movement, mm -hmm. whenever he um, he was working with Kyle Biederman to uh, come up with the Texas um, legislation to put in front of the uh, state legislator, right. he was he was uh, talking about the average income in the United States today is is around like thirty three thousand dollars for a for a family. Mm -hmm. For a couple, I think it was, or maybe it's per person. I can't remember exactly. But he said that he ran, he found this uh, Cato study that suggested minus the Federal Reserve, the inflationary standard, and the regulations that the federal government puts on the money supply, that the average income would be around $350,000. Holy moly. In, in the United States. Now, I've never seen that study. I looked for it, I could not find it. Have you ever seen that? I haven't seen it either. Uh, that seems like a lot, but I wouldn't be shocked because you can just look at, you know, if, when you start talking about regulatory burden that you're, that you're tossing on top of, of the taxation and the inflation tax and all of that, I don't know. I, we know it's a significant number, right? I mean, let's mm -hmm. just, let's just say that that for a fact and, I'll try to look for that and see if we can see if I can. Well, I mean, we know we know that story. we know that since abandoning the gold standard, at least that the the United States dollar has lost what ninety six percent of its uh its value. So right. a, a dollar today is basically worth four cents in nineteen seventy. Right. Um, and, and so so you could you could convert that and you know, the, but I don't think that would quite come out to to three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Um, but but. I mean, he he was talking about not only the inflationary standards like the that part of it. He was also talking about the regulatory standards that you have right. to follow. Um, and he was talking about the average income of a of a Texan. So you're talking about uh, a, a, a huge oil industry. Right. But I, I don't know if he I don't know if it was if, if he configured in the fact that the that the United States government props up the price of oil as well. 
right? Well, yeah. So, so I mean, I remember whenever what was it, was it last year or the year I think it was a year before last when oil had dropped down to like around thirty dollars a barrel, and uh, they were yeah. they were laying people off in the oil field, and a, and a buddy of mine was he was he was so mad about it, and I was like, yeah, but but what you're seeing is the actual the system actually healing itself. This is where it should right. be. This would be the natural price. Would probably be lower than thirty dollars a barrel. As, as much as they've fixed that that price and and you know manipulate right. it the same way they manipulate the um, the interest rates with the Federal Reserve. So I, I don't know yeah. if that's necessarily, but maybe the living standards would be uh yeah. you know it, you would it would definitely be you know hundred hundred fifty thousand a year living standard yeah. you know i mean we we can at least go that far i don't know about the three hundred fifty thousand, but that's what he was saying so i was like wow yeah. that is insane so let's pick on the right wingers for a second too you know we've we've kind of we've kind of bludgeoned the uh the, our, our progressive friends let's <laughs> let's bludgeon our conservative friends on the right too because you get the same support for the system from them uh, as you do from from the left and and right. in some ways it frustrates me more because from the right you get this oh we're for the free market you know we're for capitalism we're for the american way right well we should get rid of the federal reserve oh we can't do that you know, oh no, that's an important institution in our government system. So you know, they're just as bad because they don't even recognize the fact that the that the government uh, is so intertwined in the economy that we don't have capitalism, we don't have a free market, and yet they're willing to support all of this same garbage as the people on the left. It's kind of you know sometimes the left and the right when you get down to kind of the mainstream politics, it's really just two sides of the same coin. Uh, you know, they, they're Michael, different in Michael. Mal Alice has that quote that conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit. Speed limit. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote an article about that for the 10th Amendment Center years ago about, you know, what, what exactly are we conserving? The bar keeps moving. You know, what was what was a conservative position uh, even when I was a kid in the 80s is much different. You know, a Reagan conservative. Reagan used to be the, the conservative standard. Now it's Trump. And Trump's really a progressive. I mean, he was he was a Democrat, for God's sake, at one point. Uh, so it is. It's a moving target. Malice is absolutely right about that. So, um, well, and, and our it, point it, is, I think. Oh, no, go ahead. That's, uh, I was just going to say to, to drive the point home, uh, whether you are on the left or whether you are on the right, these institutions, these government quasi bank uh whatever you want to call this hybrid monster that we've created, it is your enemy. No matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, we could actually come together and agree on this if we really wanted to. Uh, but instead, you know, we're worried about woke culture and who uses what bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to be doing, I, I've been doing a lot of research on, on this particular point and I'm, I'm going to be doing a solo episode on that, which is going to be, uh, it's going to completely just oh, hold on one second. I got uh, yeah, everything's yes. Uh, uh, uh. Sorry about that. There, I guess they're about to unload me. Uh, so that that should that should stay in the show. It probably will. Boogie always <laughs> has to make an appearance. It wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be. Year zero, if it wasn't for my mascot appearing every once in a while. 
He's protecting the truck. Oh man, no, he's 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 trying to make new friends. Is what he's trying oh, to do. Okay, not protecting. He, the truck. he 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 looks like he's protecting the truck because he's a big old monster. But he's just trying to make right. friends. That's all he wants. He just wants somebody to play with. Well, him. Uh, sit back. It's all we all. It's what we all want, right? Sit, sit. Thank you. Good boy. All right. So, uh, I don't even. Oh yes. Okay. So. Here, here's where I come out on the conservative side is, you know, they gave they gave Obama such a hard time about Syria. He, oh, you drew a red line in the sand. And when they crossed that line, you did nothing about right. it. You're just showing how weak you are, how vulnerable you are. You're making the United States a weak and vulnerable country, yada, yada, yada. But every time they draw, enough. Every time, every time they draw a line in the sand and the progressive step, step over that line, they're like, okay, well, here's the new line. Okay. Well, here's the new line. And I'm just waiting. I'm like, when are y'all, when are y'all going to grow some balls and be like, no, no. And push back. Nowhere do we see this. Nowhere do we see this more clearly than with gun control. Yes. Well, yeah, we're not going to have any gun control. Oh, well, you want to do a registry? Well, yeah, that's okay, but nothing more. Oh, bump stock ban. Okay, yeah, that's not too bad, but nothing more. You know, next thing you know, they're going to be like, uh, well, we can still have our flintlock pistol. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Crazy. You know, every time I see somebody on, on Twitter, uh, you know, talking about, well, you know, if you want your Second Amendment, you can have the same, same, uh, firearms that the founders had and i'll say good when do i get my warship you know <laughs> right? oh my cannon <laughs> yeah exactly yeah like, bring it to me I, I want i want my warship i'm gonna i'm gonna park it off the coast of new york and if y'all do something that makes me mad just watch out buddy because the privateers are coming <laughs> that'd be awesome aircraft carrier i want an aircraft <laughs> right. carrier because i like the airplanes yeah oh Enough, boogie. Oh, he got all riled up. He was being so calm there for a minute. <sighs> He's chewing on my arm down here on the floor. Stop. You can't. I, there's too many wires. You can't get in my lap, dude. Come on. Here. Get in your chair. There. Late. Goodness. <laughs> it's nonstop with this one. Sometimes I'll sit back in the bunk and I'm back there. He'll be crawling on my head. He'll have his head like <laughs> licking my face. I'm trying right. to listen to what's going on. I can't pay any attention. So, but um, where can, where do people need to look uh, when it comes to, to the federal reserve and learning more about it? I, I always think about, you know, um, Rothbard had that book, the case against the fed. Yeah, that's excellent. And he had another book called, uh, uh, what is, what has government done to our money was, was another good one. That's a good one. Of course, the creature from Jekyll Island is excellent to get into the history mm. of, of the fed. Uh, there's another one that, that um, I think I have it. I'm trying to think of the name of it. There's a couple of books that Rothbard wrote on banking uh, mm -hmm. and you can just go, you know, one of the things that I would recommend doing is just go to like the Mises Institute website and put in the search box, federal reserve, uh, you'll find all kinds of, you know, shorter articles that will explain a lot of this type of stuff. And, uh, you know, if you kind of want to follow how the Federal Reserve is manipulating the system today, I, I write on it on just about a daily basis over at the Shift Gold website, which is shiftgold.com slash news. 
uh, and, and you can kind of get a feel for how all of this manipulation that the Fed is doing is impacting the economy kind of on a day-to-day uh, practical basis. But there's a lot of information out there that folks can can avail themselves of. The problem is, again, it's not the most interesting thing in the world unless you're a nerd like me. Um, but it's worth taking the time, you know, taking a day or two and studying it just to at least understand what's going on. Because I think when you do understand, when you do see the impact that this is having, it's going to make you angry. And we need more people that are angry about this. I, I, I wish people got as upset about these kinds of things as they do, uh, you know, like when Donald Trump said something mean on Twitter or whatever. Right. Yeah. Ron Paul wrote a book on the Fed, too, didn't he? I, I think he did. And I think it's called In the Fed. Yes, you're right. I haven't read it, but I, I've seen it. I mean, I'm, I'm bad about not reading everything I want to read. You know, my wife's like, you can't order any more books until you get your your <laughs> bookshelf put up and all these books that you haven't gotten to yet read. And I'm like, okay, yeah, all right. You know, because I probably have, I don't know, probably 15 books that I'm like, yes, I'm getting to it. I will get to it. And every time yes. I start a new one, I order three more. So. <laughs> well, I've been, I've been told it's healthy to have a lot of unread books around because it reminds you of how much you don't know, yeah. which I think is a good attitude for people because I think a lot of people uh, think far more of their own intelligence than they should. You know what I found? The more I learn about things, and I, I've said this in the past, but the, le- the less I know. Is oh, what yeah, I always absolutely. say the more I learn, the less I know, because I yeah. it, it makes the more you learn, the, the more uncertain you are about the knowledge you already have. Yep. Yeah, which which is something there was also a, um, a little animated documentary that I found on YouTube about the Fed a few years back. I wonder if it's still there. I'll put that in the links. Yeah, there's like I said, there's a bunch of good stuff out there uh, if you look around the libertarian landscape uh, there's been a lot of good work on this for god's sake don't go to the mainstream you know cnbc yeah. because they'll tell you that the fed is essential to our uh, to our well-being but uh, yeah. there's there's plenty of good things to avail yourselves to and uh, um, i wrote an article that you can find over at 10th amendment center um, now i can't remember the title of it but it's something to the effect of how the fed wrecks the economy and it just goes through how it basically perpetuates the business cycle, the boom bust cycle that we see in the economy of these, uh, you know, these manic booms like we the uh, the housing bubble that we saw in 2006, 2007, and then the crash. All of that is uh, directly traceable back to Fed monetary policy. Do you want to explain how the boom bust cycle works for for people that aren't familiar with how it works? Oh my! Um, do we have time tr- for that? I'll, I'll try to do I'll try to do the quick and dirty version. Um, So basically what the purpose of all of this monetary policy is from an economic standpoint is stimulus. You'll hear them talk about it. We're going to stimulate the economy. We're in a recession. We're going to stimulate. So the idea is that we push interest rates low. We encourage borrowing. We encourage debt. People spend money that they really honestly don't have. uh, And that's supposed to stimulate the economy and get us out of a recession. This is just pure Keynesian economics. Um, The problem with this spending is, is you're, you're spending money recklessly. You know, we have interest rates for a reason. They are the signposts on the road that tells us the value of money. And like all prices, it helps direct money 
and resources into the proper stream. When you start manipulating that, when you start messing with that money system, you start creating, um, uh, you know, I guess what's the word I'm looking for? Almost a mania of spending and borrowing. Uh, what you're doing is you're basically outstripping your resources. So you're going to get this bubble. You're going to get rising prices uh, as the money is injected into the system. It has to go somewhere. And, and so it creates asset bubbles. Um, I mentioned the housing uh, situation that we had in 06, 07. After the uh, uh, crash in 08, uh, we repeated the cycle, dropped interest rates, encouraged more borrowing. We saw a lot of that money going into the stock market. That's part of the reason we have stock market valuations as high as they are today. So basically what happens is the Fed uh, cuts interest rates. It stimulates the borrowing and spending. Uh, we get these asset bubbles. At some point, the economy can no longer sustain that. And then the entire thing crashes and uh, the Fed repeats the process again um, and, and creates what is known as the business cycle or the boom bust cycle. So it's basically monetary policy that is driving this. And again, um, I'll, I'll send you the email, uh, a link to that article that really kind of explains it um, in, in a much more concise or not concise, but in a much more structured way than what I just did. But the important takeaway here is that the Fed manipulating the money is incentivizing borrowing and spending. It creates spending mania. It outstrips the resources. The bubbles pop. Uh, the economy crashes. And then the solution is more of what the Fed did to create the problem to begin with. And we just repeat the cycle ad nauseum. Yeah. And, and as I was saying, with the with the propping up of the oil prices and when the oil price came down to thirty dollars a barrel, how that was actually like the what the real price should have been. Mises points out that the bust is actually the healthy part of the economy. Yes. And it's the boom. Right. It's the boom that is showing us what is absolutely that is exposing what is wrong. And it's the creating this bubble that is doomed to bust and the bust though that's where we suffer the bust is what the what the real economy a healthy economy would be minus you know without all this in intervention into the economic system yeah another kind of visual image that you can use is imagine <laughs> if you 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 want to build a house and all of a sudden you've got all of this extra money because hey i can borrow and so everybody starts building houses. I'm going to you're going to build this house and you never actually look and see how many actual bricks there are. So you get in going into the process and at some point you realize, oh crap, there aren't enough bricks to finish this house because you've not properly calculated your costs. You've not calculated the actual resources in the system. You've been all caught up in this, uh, this bubble of money. Well, when you run out of bricks, you got a problem finishing the house. Basically, it's not going to get finished. That is when the bust actually happens. And like you said, it's healthy because we're going to redistribute these bricks that you've been holding that you never really were going to be able to do anything with. They're going to go back into the economy into something that can actually be built. You have to have the bust in order to reallocate resources in the way that they should be. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what we're doing right now. And, and we're right in the middle of the boom phase. Uh, I think coronavirus kind of short-circuited the bust that we were heading toward in, in 2019. And yeah. uh, so now we've got the monetary medicine in spades. <coughs> Excuse me. And I suspect that, uh, you know, in the next, 
I, I can't put a timetable on it. There's no way to do that. But we're seeing the same cycle uh, creating all over again, where all of the stimulus money's got to go somewhere. Uh, and eventually that whole thing is going to bust the stock market, record valuations. We have an economy right now that ostensibly is still suffering from the impacts of a pandemic, right? Uh, we still have relatively high unemployment. Uh, there's a lot of businesses that have shut down. There's all kinds of debt in the economy. And let, yet the stock market is at record valuations. That doesn't make sense. The only way that happens is when you have artificially pumped up asset bubbles thanks to Federal Reserve monetary policy. And uh, when bubbles inflate, they pop. So, yeah. you know, it's just, it's just a matter of time. Well, it will. Let's uh, let's end here with uh, some hopeful, some something hopeful for for the listeners. I heard the other day that there is a group of attorneys getting together, suing for, uh, under the Freedom of Information Act to get the Federal Reserve to disclose all its documents and uh, kind of Ooh. backdoor an audit. So. I think that is some hopeful news. Um, I'll, I'll link to that. So it, what, what do you see happening in, in the financial circuit or in the economy that makes you hopeful about the future of, of mon money or uh, the American people? Well, I think we're starting to see more monetary competition. Um, you know, you've always had gold and silver, um, and the government has done its best to kind of put uh, restraints on it. Uh, they've, you know, they've taxed it. They act like it's a commodity instead of money. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing a number of states that are actually uh, repealing capital gains and sales taxes on gold and silver, which um, will could, if people are willing to, allow them to function more as money. Uh, so I think that's a positive. We're starting to see technology advance to the place where you can use sound money like gold uh, in everyday transactions without actually having to lug around bars of gold. So that's good. Um, cryptocurrencies, I think, are a bright spot on the horizon. Uh, we are developing ways to transact uh, that are free from the government monetary uh, fiat system. So I think this type of thing that we're seeing bubbling up kind of in the free market spaces, you know, it's like weeds uh, in the sidewalk. They're going to creep up. And uh, eventually, if, if they grow powerful enough, it starts to crack the concrete. And I really do think that as the fiat system, as this unsustainable system begins to crumble and collapse under its own weight, I think there are things in place uh, sound money that can move in and create a situation where we can maybe restore some sanity to the system, whether it's crypto, whether it's gold and silver, whether it's a combination thereof, uh, you know, a free market in money is what we need and let the world decide what we want to use instead of having it dictated to us by politicians and bureaucrats and bankers in Washington, D.C. So I'm, I'm really optimistic in that sense. I think ultimately the free market always wins and uh, what is unsustainable eventually collapses. It will be painful. Um, it will be difficult. But I think that uh, in, in, at some point, uh, there are better days ahead because this system is going to be exposed for what it is, a giant house of cards that's going to eventually fall. Uh, so I encourage people to um, you know, look for alternatives to shield your wealth. Don't have all of your money in dollars or in stocks. Invest in sound money, invest in gold, invest in silver, invest in crypto. 
um, learn Invest about in the yen. Yeah, <laughs> or, or the yuan, the Chinese right. yuan, maybe. Yeah. Um, well, and and there is something to be said for for diversifying your uh, portfolio outside of the United States because I think the first thing that's going to happen is is uh, the dollar is going to be pushed off its purchase, the reserve currency, yeah. and uh, that's going to be bad news for America in mm-hmm. terms of its economic power, and and that power will shift to someplace else, and right. how, how that'll play out, we don't know. Uh, but it's not unwise to have in investments if if you're looking, you know, to save for your future, to have that diversified into other currencies and and um, in companies that are outside the United States, developing nations and whatnot. I'm not giving financial advice. My whole point is is just be wary of the dollar and be wary of the system that exists and look for ways to shelter yourself from that. And again, I really like crypto and and of course gold and silver uh, historically have been, um, you know sound money that's it's been sound money for five thousand years i don't have any reason to think it's going to cease to be sound money anytime in the future so right yeah okay well we'll plug what you got to plug mike where can everybody find you at well talking about you know i've already mentioned shift gold uh i do the uh website there i'm the managing editor of uh, shiftgold.com and uh again if you go over there every day i do a couple of posts um, and, and you'll find a lot of Peter's content. Peter Schiff is excellent on, uh, on kind of the practical aspects of monetary policy. So check that out. And, you know, of course, I'm always doing work over at the 10th Amendment Center. Our role over there is just trying to undermine federal power, decentralized using state and local power, 10thamendmentcenter.com. Uh, I have my own website, michaelmeharry.com. Uh, and I post stuff over there. Don't do a lot over there. And I used to have a podcast, but I kind of let that go to the wayside. And, and if you're uh, interested in the intersection of Christianity and, uh, and libertarianism, you can go over to godarchy.org. And I talk about stuff uh, over there, kind of from a Christian standpoint, but not really like it's not like overtly not cramming religion down your throat. In fact, the uh, episode that I'm going to put out this afternoon, I did an interview with uh, economist Walter Block about uh, some of the fallacies of socialism. So that'll be cool. Nice. So yeah, that's where you can find me. All right, Mike. Well, I'm going to stop the recording now and uh, we're going to get all that put in the show notes. For you. And choose well, it's a game that was made for you to lose. It doesn't really matter how many times, it's the same old worn out story, same old lines. There are all pointing dirty fingers in hypocrisy, bragging on their feet of mediocrity again. Never really making any kind of change, but they keep on getting reelected, and I find that strange. And that's why I say fuck them, don't feed them, cause we don't even need them. I never celebrate the tyrants out of taking our freedoms. Yeah, I said fuck them, don't feed them, cause we don't even need them. I never celebrate the tyrants out of taking our freedoms. Gather in the
themselves. And that's why I say fuck them, don't feed them, cause we don't even need them. I never celebrate the territory again, I feed them. Take it.